I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, a very special kind of talk episode where we commemorate and celebrate three years of When Diplomacy Fails and a million downloads. This is a bit of a jack-of-all-trades episode because a lot of things are kind of going on in it. I decided to take this opportunity here to talk about my recent travels to London, to Gallipoli, and a few other uh, interesting items and side notes like big orange heads and new websites and that kind of thing. So I hope you'll enjoy the episode, and I'd just like to say a gigantic thank you for uh, sticking with When Diplomacy Fails for three years and making it a very special and enjoyable place to be. So thanks very much, guys, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The next voices you hear will be mine and Sean's. Back on the podcast, and my guest, as always, is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello. It's been a very, very long time. Really has been really ages. When was the last time you were on this? Oh, I don't know. Like, last year, at least. I think it was, like, the end of the July crisis. Oh, yeah, that's right. Do you want to work it out? No, I don't, because I'll, <laughs> I'll just embarrass myself. So let's just let's just say it's been a very, very long time. And about 10 months. About 10 months <laughs> or so. And we'll move on from there. So, yeah. You may have noticed, dear listeners, the reason why we're doing this, because it is May 2015. Uh, If that date's significant at all to you, it should be, because around this time three years ago, When Diplomacy Fails was born. Yep, this is the anniversary episode. Three years in the making. And not only that, but another thing, I think I'm putting this all in the title anyway, so it won't be that much of a mystery... But we're also one million downloads strong. Woo! One million downloads strong. That's uh, yeah. you know, halfway to two. Halfway to two. Halfway to two million. But also, <laughs> also one million in its own right, which is pretty pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty damn good. I still remember looking at the downloads and being like, "Oh wow, I have a hundred downloads. That's amazing." And now I have a one million. And now. That's pretty good. If only you got a dollar for every every view, right? You'd be a millionaire. I know, I would be. Yeah, well, pay-per-view. Pay-per-view, man. You should do That's pay-per-view. What... <laughs> people were telling me to uh, charge for the back catalogue already. They were like, people, people will uh, download them. And I was like, have you listened to my very first episode? If I charged someone for that, I would feel bad. Because... Um, wow. Maybe then charge people for your new episodes... 
and then release them for free like a month later or something oh yeah or have them available online for like a month and then after that you have to pay for them okay so then you're rewarding people for loyalty and being there on time Mm -hmm. and then punishing those laymen that get to the party late yeah but then you won't be as accessible and then you won't hit two million what about all those poor first year history students that just need to just need to get up on their history yeah and they're relying on you and your free sources to to give them that yeah i really should i should uh keep the freedom i should keep keep going with the giving i think i mean there's not too many people out there who are in a position to pay for these kinds of things i don't really think i mean people will give you donations and stuff out of the goodness of their heart but i don't really think you should be charging for podcasts because well it depends on the podcast mm. as well because like if i don't know if you got a whole bunch of celebrities together like i don't know brad pitt if you had a, brad pitt had a podcast i'm sure he could charge money for that because he's just pretty famous not that he'd probably have anything interesting to say it's just he has like what would apparently his 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 time is more valuable than our time so well um, yeah his breath is more valuable than our breath like what would he talk about on i, I actually don't know this is why i i i picked him out as a suggestion <clears throat> i was like Maybe I should pick Tom Cruise because then at least oh god, at least <laughs> well, then... Tom Cruise. No, at least, no. At I... least Brad Pitt would talk about like his seventeen children. or no, something. No, okay, that's true. But but mm. Tom Cruise would then always talk about how how short he is, right? That's, yeah, that's what he'd do it's in been... every single episode. It would be like what it's like to be a secret midget or something, <laughs> something like closet midget. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, or he'd just talk about, like, Scientology and jump, oh, up, yeah, jump up and true. down well, on No, no, because he's not allowed to talk mm. about that. Isn't that the whole point of Scientology, is that you have to, like, pay to get into the tiers of of knowledge? Oh. Uh, yes, you so, do. But... So he'd, he'd be able to tell you, like, tier one stuff and not be able to tell you anything more because you mm. have to pay to get to It's tier like Fight Club. You can't really talk about it. Yeah, which brings us back to Brad Pitt, actually. Oh, yeah, would you look at that? How about that? So, yeah, no, I guess Brad Pitt was the uh, the better option for my analogy. Yeah. So that was a whole bunch of yeah. rambling that you, you don't need to leave in. But you so missed that from us. Definitely. Yeah. That. I mean, why listen to a history podcast when you can listen to something like that? Yeah, well, I guess that the point is we're not going to charge for <laughs> our podcast or your podcast. Yeah. I think a good indication of the quality of this podcast, the breadth of what we talk about, a good example of it is the rambling we just got into. So yeah. I would not charge anyone for that. And if I did, I would not talk about what I just talked about. So I think we should start with the way we normally started, which is... Back on the podcast, and my guest as always, Mr. Zach Twomley. Well, no, I was... Zach, talking. say hello. Hello. <laughs> well, I was talking more like along the lines of C-Fit. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> so be be fit No you do it properly Sorry So Sean the other day I was like walking along And I was thinking to myself Man I'm, I'm really like Kind of losing out on my, on, on, my, on my fitness here I'm kind of like putting on weight Do you know what I really need to do You know what you need to do Be fit Be fit Woo <laughs> So the B says Blah wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie where you can find out all sorts of information about the podcast such as latest episodes and photos that will go along with them speaking of which there is a brand new post on the Battle of Gallipoli 
which I will talk more about later on in this episode. This episode is kind of going to kind of be like a jack of all trades episode because I have so much to talk about and get through and it's kind of a long time coming. So Gallipoli is one of those things that I'm going to be talking about. So if you've no idea what this episode is going to look like, don't worry. It's going to be good, but there's going to be loads of stuff in it. And Gallipoli is one aspect of it. And the Battle of Gallipoli was covered in the blog. And there's probably a way more streamlined way to say that, but oh well. E is for... Uh, email, where you can email Zach Plumley at Zach, when the plumacy fails at the, at, uh, uh, the thing.com. You're fired. WDFpodcast <laughs> at really hotmail.com. Hotmail. See, I didn't know what a domain it was at. So. See, the reason why I choose, people are like, oh, get out of the last century, Zach. But I yeah, swear to God. Gmail. <laughs> I, like, I tried to make a new blog post the other day, and for crying out loud, it was the most convoluted thing ever. It wouldn't let me sign into Google, and even though I didn't want to sign into Google... And every time I tried to sign to my blog, it was like, that's not the right action that goes along with this account. Please choose another action. Like, I just want to get into the blog. That's all. So we had an hour, and eventually I just clicked a different button on the blog, and I got into the blog. But the reason why I don't like Google is because it tries to make you, like... Sign into everything? Yeah, put everything together. I just want email. I don't want all that stuff. At least Hotmail, it knows its limits. It knows that it's just trying to be email. Google thinks it's trying to be everything, so... I try to avoid Google wherever possible, which is why I have Hotmail. But yeah, so WDFpodcast at Hotmail.com, where you can email me directly, and I will see all those emails, and I will sometimes respond to them. And Sometimes? I thought you were like an avid respondent. To um, not, as, not as good at responding as I really should be, to be quite honest. You people know who you are who sent me emails and they're like, is that really the right address, or is he just being a being a very silent responder and just not talking to me? You should get one of those Autobots. Like, not the robots from the cartoon, but one of those bots that, like, says your email has been received. Yeah. And, uh, thank you for your email. And we'll get uh, back to you we'll as soon as possible. You, yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, never when it's me. <laughs> or, uh, due to... You could, like, come up with some phony excuse. Like, due to me being really busy and lazy at the same time, I'm not going to write back. I am Just... busy and lazy at the same time. <laughs> that wouldn't be a lie. But, yeah, I will try and get better at uh, replying. But I appreciate all your emails, so please keep them coming. Yeah, like, if, if you just want to encourage him, this guy needs all the encouragement he can get. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, F is for <laughs> Facebook, which is where you can find the Facebook page for When Diplomacy Fails. Do you know what? Just search When Diplomacy Fails podcast in Facebook. In that search bar in Facebook, and this page will come up. Yeah, I mean, you can also go through the History Podcasters page. Uh, but that's a, a little bit trickier because you have yeah, to Zach Twomley That's true, and it takes a while. But uh, I do exist on Facebook as Zach Twomley. It's my real name. So if you want to add him as a friend... You could if you, you really you wanted. Could, or uh, you could just follow me. But then you, then you would, when he puts out new episodes, be overloaded. <laughs> like, I get hit with it three ways because I get it from the, the podcast page, from the history page, and from the from his page himself. Like I, also, I also keep ringing him and telling him about the new episode that I released. Until he eventually says, yes, Zach, I have listened to it. Yeah, yeah. or I just lie and say, yeah, I listen to it. You lie? Sometimes, but oh. in fairness, you call me until I listen to it, so... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who else am I going to bother? No one else cares! <laughs> okay, so When Diplomacy Fails podcast, the name of the Facebook page, you can find out all sorts of information about like the latest episodes, past episodes. Generally, there's a few nice pictures to go along with it. Sometimes it's just kind of how I'm doing. Like, the information's good. If you're in any way a fan of the podcast, you'll want to have liked that Facebook page. And a lot of you guys have liked it already. There's almost 1,500 likes on it, which is pretty cool. So keep keep those likes coming. I really appreciate them. So I is for... iTunes! iTunes, where you can... 
What can you do, Sean? You can write a review. Yes. You can rate it and you can subscribe. And you can subscribe. And what does subscribing entail? It means that it downloads straight to your iPod without you even having to try. It yes. Just, it just automatically does it. Just automatically does it. I don't even it. use Apple stuff, so this is like really good that I know. Yeah. It's because like, it's been drilled into you. Yeah. Just like with everyone else who knows it. Fit. <laughs> so, I is for iTunes. Yes, you can, ladies and gentlemen, rate, review, subscribe. And all of those things are very useful to do because... Doing that helps the algorithm of the podcast, makes it more popular, etc., etc. Gets it on the front page. Gets it on the front page, yeah. That's how that works. I'm pretty sure it does, because there's kind of like the What's Hot of History podcast. Oh, nice. Now, for a while, when I had a good few episodes going at once, when I had that kind of every week... July crisis. Well, the the July crisis, yeah, that really helped the profile go up a bit, but it was also just a few weeks ago when I had the Swedish deluges and the Anglo-Dutch war. If you have a regular podcast schedule... The, the iTunes, iTunes realizes yeah, it, it so rewards it. yes, yeah, it's, it's normally like quite prolific. Then once that happens, Ooh, which is good, That's yeah, a good it's a very good yeah. word. I use that a lot. So yeah, so keep doing what you're doing, guys, because I really appreciate it. So T is for T is for tell anything, tell anything at all, because mm-hmm. we are desperate. I mean, we got a million views or downloads, so uh, we we did that through perseverance and literally letting anything download it. Tell anything. <laughs> Tell so anything. What 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 we mean by that is literally anything. So, uh, you know, when 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 you have your first child, that at that point, the first thing you say to your child isn't something like "I love you" or "This is an expression of our love." No, not something no, stupid no, no, like no, that. No, no. What you want to say to it is. <clears throat> I'm going to let you listen to When Diplomacy Fails. You are going to listen to When Diplomacy Fails. It's going to be one of the best things you ever listen to. If your child's first word is not be fit, you're parenting wrong. <laughs> I <laughs> That's think. it. Yeah. I mean, th- this is like foundational to your life. It's, yeah. it's, You've it's, had three years, parents. Three years, parents yeah. of the world. You need to... If you want your kids to like history, this is the way to go about it. <laughs> if you want your kids to be just plain normal, then their first word had better be be fit. Re- really, uh, yeah, no, we've we've gone too far with it. I think so. Uh, tell tell anything. Tell anything at all, but Just ideally things that will actually yeah listen to it. Yeah. Like, so I say we top it off from the top all of it, all again. So, so B fit. B is for blog. E is for email. F is for Facebook. I is for iTunes. T is for tell anything. Thank you for doing B fit. If you've done all of it, parts of it, or even thinking of doing parts of it or all of it, thank you so much because. It's you guys that keep this podcast going, and you guys are part of the reason why, well, the main reason why. The, actually, the only reason The only why. reason why I am at one million downloads, and I'm at three years of age. So thank you guys so much. Okay. So I think we could start into the meat of the episode now. Alrighty then! Okay. Okay, so, uh, Mr. Zach Twomley, you have had quite an interesting year since, uh, since I last spoke to you on the podcast. Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's let's start with uh, I suppose you you kept everyone up to date with how the masters was impeding your ability to really podcast in a, a regular sort of way. Mm-hmm. But how did that go for you, and where are you now in your in your master's degree? This is unusually uh, well organized or something. You don't normally interview me like this, do you? No, no, I, I don't. But I just, <laughs> it's just coming at me. So okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it. Okay, cool. Okay, so. <clears throat> My f- uh, so, let's say the uh, Masters is split up into two semesters, let's say. So the first one basically involved me doing modules. One of the modules was on the First World War. Another one was on the origins of modern diplomacy. And I another mean, one was on the 
political violence in the 20th century. And that has to be very convenient for you, considering the July crisis that you went through just before the start of that semester. It was, yeah. Because everything in all those modules would have had at some point have to touch on the, the politics and the First World War. It did, yeah. to I, and being I, in. I found it because of that, I think, it wasn't so much that I did that deliberately, but certainly all the modules I did tied in very well with my key interests, which would be like 1914. I mean, I think at the moment it's kind of self-evident in all the books that I have and everything that I talk about that 1914 and the July crisis is a very big part of my interests. So... All these things tied in very, very well, and all the modules were very interesting, especially the origins of modern diplomacy, seeing where it all came about, basically where the the things that tie my podcast together, where those ideas ever came from, I think are very interesting things to look into. Cool. And so, how did how did you find those? You you had a, a good lectures, or, or did you find that you were you were just you know working this out by yourself and, and doing a lot of the stuff that you'd already done well see what i'm doing is a taught masters there's like a taught masters or a research masters so a taught one is still you're kind of you're fair you still feel very much like a college student i mean there's less actual lectures and there's more independent work but you're still very much a student whereas with research you'd be kind of on your own in the library focusing all your efforts on your dissertation so i was doing a lot of work on the advice of the lecturers, which was still good because I still like being told kind of where to go and what to do and that kind of thing. Right. But, but yeah. yeah, but my lecturers were very good. Um, they kind of treat you more like a kind of grown-up adult person yeah, sure. when you're doing a master's. I mean, uh, any any notable <laughs> shout-outs for, for good lecturers in UCD? Uh, in fact, a lot of the, the main heavy hitters in UCD in the history department were the guys that I had as my lecturers. So... William Mulligan, written a few books on the First World War, and he's actually my supervisor for my dissertation now. He's a great guy. Uh, Robert Gervarth, he's a absolute genius prodigy of history and of political violence, and he's very sought after in history departments. Apparently, word on the street is there was a bit of a bidding war for him and and everything, but I am not. don't know if I'm supposed to know about that or anything. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, hey, no, that's a compliment, right? Mm. Now we have, finally, Declan Downey, who is uh, probably... The most influential for me, I think it was in third year or so, he kind of re reinvigorated my interest in history, and it kind of all started with the Hullierman Empire and all that kind of stuff, about the time that I'd started the 30 Years' War special, so he was very interested in that, So, and his encouragement really, really helped me along, so I owe a lot to him, and he really did help me with, with my studies and stuff last semester. But yeah, so with all of those... So yeah, it transitioned into a second part, uh, like the second semester after Christmas, I presume. Yes, it did, yeah. Well, the second semester, it was... It all kind of boiled down to the dissertation, really, which is what I'm doing now. Um, the dissertation's kind of... It kind of revolves around... Okay, I suppose the best way to start explaining the dissertation is kind of... The dissertation's like a big, big essay, so 15,000 words. And it's kind of... It's worth it's worth more than anything else I've done in the Masters. So obviously there's a lot writing on this. And you kind of get to choose what you want to do. And then once you've decided your, your specific topic, they assign you a supervisor who'll be best able to kind of deal with well, you. What, what topic did you pick? That's a good question. So you might be surprised to find out that I did something to do with the July crisis. But I didn't, like, you can't just do the July crisis because obviously it's too broad. You have to take kind of a specific angle. So I thought I had a specific angle before, but it wasn't even specific enough. So I had to keep keep on going down and narrowing it down. So I've reached this point where I think I know what I'm doing now. Well, I hope I do, because I've got a good few words done on it. 
So the title of my dissertation is... Okay, so drumroll. No, no, well, okay, drumroll. Do it. Yeah. It is. Uh, so, honour during the July crisis. So, what does that mean? And at first you might be like, well, that's really obvious. Or, oh, I haven't even thought about that. That's not important. But I'm looking at it from the specific point of view of Britain. How British politicians and how the British media, how they referred to honour and, and what they thought about it. It's kind of difficult to define what honour means. Honour means was, so many different things. It was most things. certainly a cultural phenomenon in in uh, the 1900s, early 1900s. Yeah, the reason why Europe. I think it's hard for us to kind of get our head around it is because honour nowadays is nothing at all like what honour was back then. Honour kind of originated as this idea in dueling between, like, gentlemen. And from there, kind of during the French Revolution and that kind of thing, it changed from being a purely gentlemanly idea to being a mostly a stately idea and then the popularity of dueling gradually decreased and um, but we've actually come across you may not realize we've come across the idea of like uh, honor before when it comes to states you might have remembered in the past in the uh, anglo-dutch war i was talking about the sovereignty of the seas and the british sovereignty over the english channel and the British right to uh, wrest salutations from foreign ships, that in itself is really a lot to do with the Code of Honour. That kind of idea that your state is strong enough to, to demand a certain amount of respect, I suppose honour could be interpreted as meaning a right to respect, but even then it's quite a difficult thing to interpret, and it's really the only way you'll understand it is if you place it in context of the time. So in 1914... You could say that it had a lot to do with reputation as well. For Britain's case, uh, it was wrapped up in the idea of the prestige of its empire. And say, for example, someone was to challenge the British Empire, the British would have to answer that challenge sufficiently, or else they would lose honour, they would lose prestige, and their empire would be perceived to be weaker. Like, it wasn't just the British as well, which is why it's kind of hard to pin down exactly as to what it means. Look at what happened to the Austro-Hungarians, for example... When Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, that kicked off the whole July crisis itself. The reason why Austria-Hungary felt like it had to respond with force was because it felt like it had been directly challenged, like its honour was at stake. Mm. So in order to to adequately answer that challenge, it felt it had to push for war. Now, not everyone felt like that. Some people, like the Hungarian minister-president Stefan Tisa, he thought that, oh, just a strong diplomatic satisfaction would be enough to sufficiently satisfy the uh, the craving or the the, the need to, to get honour back. Because honour was something you either had or you didn't have. But I, d- I haven't really come across someone being more honourable or less honourable when it came to states. I mean, when it came to gentlemen in like the Middle Ages or, or early modern times, one could be said to be very honourable or that kind of thing but when it comes to states you either have honour or you don't if you do have it that's great you're in the league of great powers but generally if you do not have it you're perceived as being a weaker state for example the Ottoman Empire widely perceived to be the sick man of Europe and had been propped up for years had lost the Balkan Wars before the First World War had even started its prestige in terms of its empire would would be perceived to be quite low Once you get people thinking that your prestige is low and that your empire is on the wane, that means that you be that you people would think, oh, he's he's kind of 
his empire is going downhill. He's he's vulnerable to outside attack, and that had, that played a lot to do with what we'll talk about later on, which is Gallipoli and why the Allies thought they would have such an easy time. If people think that your power is low, then they'll think that you're weak. And people's perception of how powerful your empire was had had much to do with how uh, strong you were perceived to be as much as it did to your practical power. So will you, when you're finished your dissertation, perhaps be putting this out as a piece of uh, research that, that other people can quote from or, or that people can read or that your listeners can pick up and read yes. if they would like to? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about honour is what I've come to learn from it is that even though it's not something you can directly define which is kind of frustrating in a way you can you can show that it was important but what i've certainly learned that it is important but also that very few historians of the first world war have actually looked at honor and seen how important it was i mean you could say okay britain didn't go to war for honor but other like from what i've seen it's not that straightforward yes britain britain went for strategic reasons but how do you for example get your people involved emotionally in the war and this was the thing that really interested me the week before britain went to war nobody in britain was especially enthusiastic about going to war on the continent especially if it was presented as going to war for the entente going to war for france and russia etc the big thing that changed this was of course the invasion of belgium Mm. but even then britain has no contractual ties Mm. yes there was the treaty of 1870 but the way, that, as I discovered, the way that that could be interpreted was very, very differently. You didn't have to necessarily see that treaty as a way of obliging Britain contractually by law to intervene. So your listeners will be able to listen or read your dissertation when you finish writing it and when it's been submitted and corrected and whatever it is they do to a dissertation. Yes, my plan so far is to submit, once I've once I've submitted the dissertation and once it's all been corrected and it's been through the process and they've my supervisor's been able to say, yes, this is legitimate and it's your work, etc., etc. My plan is either to read the entire contents of the dissertation and make it into a podcast maybe in two parts or release it as a pdf online either way in other words i want to make it available to you guys because i feel like having looked at this it can only contribute positively to the work that i've done in other areas like the july crisis i mean is it a more specific angle of the july crisis yes i mean you might not necessarily be interested in it but i think on a social level and on a moral level, it's a very interesting angle to take to look at what it was that motivated Britain's people. Because the British people, the British citizens, I mean, and the citizens of Europe, they weren't very interested in the strategic arguments of their governments. They were far more interested in the kind of grand, emotional, heroic, uh, romantic arguments. Like, honour was part and parcel of this argument. Now, I find it very surprising that you would choose that as your district dissertation topic considering from what i know of you the the discussion of philosophy and and the emotions and and, uh, motivations of man aren't really your thing uh but it's interesting to see you as a person grow and and explore the the human human side of humanity if that makes sense yeah that does make sense and i'm glad you mentioned that because I personally wouldn't have thought I'd do my dissertation on something like this, but having looked at Honor, even in the amount of detail I've looked in it, I feel like it's something that needs to be investigated more, and I think that's something that I've really benefited from. Like, even doing the podcast, 
from the outside looking in, you might not think that that war is particularly important or that that actor is particularly important in diplomacy or that kind of thing. But the great thing about investigating and learning history is that we can discover when we actually look at these things how important they really are. And they offer us different perspectives on eras or on wars that we might not even have thought about. So this has been... You've been working on this since since Christmas. Now, uh, I presume you've been reading and, and getting your, your notes together. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else has been happening in your life during that time, building up to this point where you're about to go write it, the dissertation? Like, uh, t- Tell us a bit about your life and... The adventures that you've had uh, since since Christmas. Okay, well, I mean, I suppose we should just jump right into it and uh, make the announcement right here. I uh, a few weeks ago traveled to London for the purpose of. Well, I was I was doing some research and I was also meeting what, a friend. What, what were but you doing, uh, what, where did you go for your research? Um, I went to the National Archives in Kew and I went to the British Library to kind of get some primary sources out but that was only really kind of those would be like secondary news in terms of that trip i mean well i mean that that was like that that would be the primary news if there wasn't something more <laughs> if there wasn't something more but that something more was quite significant i ended up having three meetings with none other than people from the bbc who were ta- who were interested? Who were, uh, uh, Mister or Mrs. Oh well, I don't really want to mention their names. Like okay, the sure. just just for their own privacy's sake. I mean, sure. if you really want to know their names, I can tell them to you. But I mean, I feel like like they didn't really. Yeah, do. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were like, hey, can I talk about you in my podcast? Yeah, so you don't have their express. Permission, they probably so, don't yeah. even know that I'm doing this. But I feel like my listeners have a right to know because these these meetings that I had, they're very exciting and they're very encouraging. And I got to see how the the biggest broadcasting uh, state broadcaster in the world, I got to see how that operated and what it took to actually work there. So uh, how do you feel, like, what, what does this mean for when diplomacy fails and what does this mean for you uh, getting in contact with the BBC? Is there something there for you? Is, is there a potential of becoming a part of the BBC? Well, I mean, uh, there there perhaps. is there is and there isn't. I mean, first of all, I'd say never say never. I don't really know now how my career, if you like, is going to go. I know what I'd like to do in the future. My dream is to be one of those guys who appears on the History Channel or, or something like that, who's who's giving advice or, or something on some kind of historical event, but who is also very qualified in his so own right. You're, you're on Pawn Stars going, oh yeah, that's a rifle. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm, the, I'm the guy on Pawn Stars who they call in. Yeah, who, it's like, I know a guy. Let yeah. me go call him. Yeah. <laughs> there's always a guy. Yeah, there's always a guy. He knows so many guys. And then they call them in and they're like, oh yes, that's worth uh, three three grand. And then, and then the guy's like, cool, I'm going to get three grand for this thing. And then... So then your man's like, so how much do you want for it? And he's like, oh, I, I'll, I'll have three grand, just like that that expert said. And he's like, no, I'm giving you 50 bucks. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> maybe maybe not Pawn Stars. Maybe not Pawn Stars. In fact, I really do despise Pawn Stars. In fact, I really do despise the History Channel, so perhaps it's not a very good example. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was great experience, and they were very, very encouraging, and they only had good words to say about me they they thought my passion was incredible and they thought that being so young and having so much such a back catalog of stuff behind me having all these listeners that listen to me 
and of course being able to say that you had one million downloads was a pretty big deal and it was it was a great thing to draw attention to it's a great it's a great thing to put on your cv if you like saying look at all yeah. these people that have yeah. shown interest Abs- absolutely you know um you, you've shown your skill as a wordsmith <laughs> i uh i suppose i should just go through each one i mean not in not in loads of detail but just so you kind of know what way it went so the first guy i met okay first it goes without saying i was very very nervous um barely able to sleep beforehand and that kind of thing but i had the first meeting it went very very well i bought the guy a latte and i had a latte as well and we sat there and we coffee in london yeah coffee in london and we discussed me and this bbc guy in london were you having this if you have ever gone for a tour of the BBC, one of those organised tours that the BBC organise, you walk in, you get one of those special cards and and they you walk through that scanner thing and they're like, no, you're not holding any weapons, etc. And then you're thrown in with a bunch of other people and you go all around, you learn the history of the BBC. That area you start in, to, if you look to your left, there's like a big coffee shop and a gift shop and everything. That's where I had my meeting okay. with okay. this important history. Fair enough. There you go. Okay. I am satisfied. <laughs> that's all that Giving matters. Giving you a hard time. Yeah, that's fine. I'm used to it. So I met this guy. He was talking to me. And What's, What was his name? Do you want to know everyone's name? Okay, his name... Let's say his name was Dominic, because that was his name. But you don't need to know the rest of his name. Okay. So his name was Dominic. He was the head of history and business in the BBC. Great guy. Really, really nice guy. Wanted to talk to me all about podcasts. He actually, he threw a lot of interesting questions my way. He wanted to know, like, what my plans were for the future, how I planned to expand the podcast, what I wanted to get out of the podcast as well. Um, Sure. Which I thought were good questions. He he was very encouraging. So uh, what what sort of responses did you give to those questions? Not to re-interview his interview, (laughs) but... uh, uh, No, that's good. It's good. Um, I basically said... I want to bring the podcast to as big a stage as I possibly can. Okay, and so like do TED talks, like do your podcast live in front of a huge. Sure, auditorium. I'd love to do that. <laughs> I, I mean, the, one of the podcasts I listen to, a wrestling one, he started off kind of small, and now every now and then he does a live one in front of loads of people. And the cool thing about that is because he's been going for all this time, they all know his quirks and all know his phrasing and everything like that. So, for example, when he's like, this is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast, they all say it along with him. So, yeah, that's, I'd, lo- I'd love to. Yeah, it's really cool. He's the guy who I stole, basically, all my stuff off. I, for, for the record, thanks is not my thing. It came from him. But, yeah, so, uh, The Art of Wrestling Podcast by Cole Cabana, by the way. Brilliant podcast, check it out. But anyway, so oh, but only if you're into wrestling. If yeah, you're not, if you're not, just... if you're not, it wouldn't really make sense to go and look it up. But anyway, back back to where we were. Back yeah. on the podcast. Back on the podcast. Yeah. So he was kind of giving me advice about how to best expand the podcast because the questions he asked me, I was kind of, I didn't really want to sound arrogant or super sure of myself, and I wasn't really sure how he was going to react. So I tried to make myself sound as modest as possible. And he was trying to tell me that I didn't have to be that modest and that I had a very good product there. And he kept referring to me as a talent, which was really, really cool. Not just like, here's a guy who does podcasting. When he was introducing me to his other uh, friends, he was like, this is the this is the talent I was talking to you about. And I was like, oh, stop it, you. So <laughs> so he advised me to, okay, you, okay listeners are going to cringe now because this is what he advised me to do. Number one, get a LinkedIn. Number two, get a website. And number three, get a Twitter 
Um, all all these things, I'm slowly oh, slowly going towards. Um, I really like if you know me at all, you know that I really don't want to get a Twitter. I mean, be fit is enough for crying out loud. We have so many ways we get out to people, but oh, I suppose Twitter is just the bane of yeah, it's the bane yeah. of the internet. I'm just not at all interested. It'll probably be the last thing I do. I just I really don't understand what the appeal. I never have understood I, the appeal of Twitter. You know, I've tried to use it, and to the extent that I'm like, uh, hey, I'm having pancakes. Well, like, why? Why would I put that up? Who needs to know I'm having pancakes? I need pancakes? to know, because like, then I can have pancakes yeah, with you. like, three years ago. Still <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. So, this is the kind of thing he wanted me to do. He sure, also sure. He wanted me to kind of capitalize on things that are going on there. He wanted me to get my name out there, email newspapers. And basically, this is how I know it's okay to mention BBC on this, is because he told me to email newspapers and that kinds of thing advertising the fact that my one millionth download has sparked BBC interest kind of thing sure so, and have you got on that yes I have but have people replied no not really oh, okay. but that's another story and I've got plenty of time to capitalise on that but he kind of gave me a good idea to kind of use the fact that there's a lot of important centenaries coming up for example the Psalm the Easter Rising uh, sure. that kind of thing oh absolutely like, so, this is like the perfect time to be a history yeah. podcast oh absolutely it is um, and if you know anything about Irish history at all you'll know that the uh, the Easter Rising is a very important event in our nation's history even but, though it, like its significance is overstated by the Irish and understated I'd say outside of Ireland yeah it's also very misunderstood so what my aim is already and you know that I already have plans to do stuff with Louis the Fourteenth, so but we'll get into my plans later, but just, just to let you know briefly, I plan on doing some kind of episode on the Easter Rising to basically dispel all the myths and clear up the historical facts and present to you as best as I can the story of what really happened in the Easter Rising. But Dominic's idea was that I use that opportunity to kind of get my podcast out there. So yeah, so I really appreciated his advice. So he was the first guy I met with, and it kind of set the tone for the rest of the meetings in the BBC. The other guy I met was a guy called Dan, and he was in the interactive history knowledge kind of part of the BBC. If you ever go on the BBC's website and you see the kind of I wonder presentations they have on certain things, they did a lot on the First World War. One of them, for example, was like, uh, people think that, say, lots of people died in the trenches in the First World War. But if that's the case, then why did so many people return home? And then it turns out that only about like 5% of people actually died in the trenches. So what were li- what was life really like in the trenches? Like questions you want to know the answer to, but you've never really thought about until you see them in this kind of light. Sure. So because he's got that kind of online experience, it was great to pick his brains about how all that kind of stuff worked and how you kind of pick up on what people are interested in. I mean, I have to do it myself. I have to kind of gauge... I have to kind of gauge when I'm doing an episode or that kind of thing, how interested are people realistically going to be? And are people going to be more interested in, say, some generic, uh, widely publicized war than they are in like the Swedish deluges, for example? And is it worth my while doing what I want to do in the Swedish deluges? Or should I just sell myself out and do something really quick and easy like... I don't know, like the Spanish Civil War or something in the 20th century. Of course, I normally am like, no, I'm doing whatever the hell I want, but you get you catch my drift. So it was great to talk to him and kind of see how the BBC works and see how their uh, hirelings get on and how... Hirelings? Yeah, because I, I kind of think of them as hirelings because 
I think the impression I got in the BBC was that unless you're set up in the BBC, the people that they bring in, especially in history, they're kind of there for a good time, but not a long time, if that makes sense. Okay. So when he was talking to me about job opportunities, he was kind of presenting it as though it would be a three to six month period and then we'd see how it went from there. Okay. So that's why I'm not kind of counting my chickens before they hatch. Is it great that I met these guys in the BBC and got my name out there and that they know of me now? Yes, it absolutely freaking is. And it can only yeah, mean good things. That is... Uh, I think Congratulations. Well, thanks very much, man. And I think it's cool because it tied in with a lot of anniversaries. Like, it was three years almost to the to the day like that I kind of was doing all that. And had I known that I really think three years before I'd be meeting people at the BBC and like no. talking to them about something no, I, I made. I remember, you know, your first episode, you were so nervous. Yeah. You could tell just out of your voice. Yeah. For the entire thing. Yeah. You were petrified. Yeah. Like even the talk episodes, like when we were just talking, me and my talking to my best friend and it was just like, it seemed like the most nerve wracking thing in the world. Very forced. I mean, yeah. even now, like it, because I haven't been on the podcast for like 10 months, I'm a little... Mm-hmm little bit shaky on what I'm actually trying to say but uh, it's it's a lot easier to speak in front of a mic now mm-hmm. three years down the road than it was three years ago sure yeah but so so those are the first two guys now the final guy was more a, a kind of curiosity thing he his name was Adrian and he was in charge of organizing how BBC uh, celebrated and recognized the centenary of the first world war okay. of its outbreak so for me that was a very big interest to see how how this guy decided what to include what to not include what worked what not worked mm. and i was talking to him mostly about my july crisis thing my july crisis anniversary pod project and also asking about my dissertation and what he thought as well because right. obviously oh, he would have been what was his two cents on the topic of honor then? oh he liked it he thought it was he actually kind of compared it to he he thought well, as soon as I mentioned honor to him, he kind of thought, well, honor is one of those words that or terms or concepts that's kind of hard to pin down. It's kind of like grace, where you're kind of like, okay, I have an idea of what it is in my head, but I can't precisely say this yeah. is what it means. Yeah. So he thought it was quite impressive and ambitious that I was doing an, a dissertation on it, and he also thought that the the idea for following the July crisis day by day was something that's incredibly important because. It's things like that. Like, people aren't necessarily going to buy a book about the July crisis because they might not be sure that they have a direct interest in it. But if you use something that's free and that's easily accessible, that people can just listen to whenever they want, they might discover through doing that that they have more of an interest in the First World War that they than they initially thought. And through that, then, they'll discover what really happened rather than the generic, it's all Germany's fault kind of story, which I think is so important to dispel even for like you might you might think oh that's not important really in this day and age but when you think about the amount of things that came from the first world war and how it's shaped our understanding and how it shaped the world thereafter i think it really is important to find yeah, out the absolutely. truth of what really so, happened uh, so that all culminated in uh, your your entire visit to the bbc to london that mm. all culminated in in you coming home with 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 what with what did you take from it, I suppose, is what I'm trying to ask you. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I took, basically, I had a good bit of pride, obviously, because all these people wanted to know about me and what I was doing. Sure. But for a long time, I've been very self-depreciating. I'm not sure if it's an Irish thing to just not be very confident in what you created. I'd always had a sense of, oh, when diplomacy fails is my baby. 
but I'd never really kind of stopped and thought to myself, like, I have a podcast and this is what I can do with it and this is what I have to offer the world. Yeah. Like, before it was kind of like the podcast is there, but when I realized when they were talking to me that when diplomacy fails, in other words, what I'm trying to say is when diplomacy fails, it is something of value. Yeah. And I think it really took meeting those guys and for them to tell me, basically, that I was doing pretty well. Like, that was probably the most important thing I took from it. A gigantic boost to my confidence when I needed yeah, oh, it the most. Absolutely. I mean, three years of, of pushing, if you didn't get some sort of some sort of little kick, you 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 know, you could get despondent with just the same old, same old in and out of, yeah. of the same repetition without really feeling like you're going anywhere. Mm. And I think it's uh, I think it's a great uplifting of your spirit. And yeah, great- I think as well. I mean, even the fact that I have met these people and I've made contacts, and these people remember me because I met them in person. And one of the things I took from it, one of the guys, the first guy I met, Dominic, was like Zach. I don't meet people just like that. The only time I ever meet people is when I feel like they're worth my time. And the fact that I was worth someone's time, it kind of made me think, well, when diplomacy fails is worth people's time because people listen to it. And I think it's kind of like was just that moment when it kind of clicked. It wasn't that I suddenly just got a really big head or anything. It was just I kind of learned to appreciate when diplomacy fails more. And rather than just seeing it as a podcast, I saw it as something that is part of my life and a big part of my life. Mm. So because of that, I felt like I just kind of had to explain what happened here, dear listeners. And I hope I haven't bored you with the oh, details. Listen, you, you can you can definitely go back in and edit all of this nonsense and rambling that you've put in. Sure. The spirit of what we've tried to say here is true mm. and it's right. And, yeah. um, and I think... I speak for all of the listeners when I say, well done, Zach. Oh, thank you very much. And I'd like to... We believe in you. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to speak to all my listeners to say thank you very much. Whatever you're doing right now when you're listening to us, whether you're thinking for crying out loud, Zach, get on with it, or whether you're thinking, oh, that's nice, he's finally gotten some kind of recognition from people that aren't just listening to the podcast. Like, these people in the BBC didn't have to do all this, Yeah, they don't. They they don't have to be fanboys, Yeah, but but they, they chose to be, you know? They chose to be. So it was great. It was a great experience all in all. And I feel so much more increased from doing it. And I feel really kind of spurred on to keep on going with When Diplomacy Fails. Mm. Not that you were ever in any mind to stop. Oh, but, God, no. No, no, no. But uh, but to, to really put more effort in and get it to go further and, and bigger and better. Mm. Uh, so expect more yeah. you know <laughs> my ambitions have increased and actually my my ideas about what when diplomacy fails should be and how it should be presented online have increased as well i'll explain more to you about what i mean by that uh, a bit later on in the episode so uh uh what what really was a highlight of the end of the, the that semester uh was it your friends? Was it this staff? How how did you feel? What was the the culmination of all of that? I think I really have to mention the fact that a few weeks ago I went back abroad then to Turkey, whereupon, as per uh, or the organization of the college, I went on this. Essentially, it was a battlefield tour of where the Battle of Gallipoli was once fought a hundred years before. And for me, this was probably the most important thing I've ever done. And if you look at the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, 
you'll see a whole blog post on this. Uh, it was probably the most one of the most incredible experiences because I've talked about wars till the cows come home. I have talked about so many wars, so many battles, so many times that diplomacy has failed. But this was the first time I'd ever been to the actual place where a battle of this magnitude had really happened. And I think I would recommend it, first of all, to anyone. But I also feel like it's a story that needs to be told. So that's why we're going to kind of try and change tack a bit and basically talk a little bit about the Battle of Gallipoli and my experience going to these battlefield tours. Well, yeah, so your, your college itself organized this for its its master's degree students, yeah? Yeah, there's, what, there's what's called a, um, a kind of... I suppose you could call it a kind of organization. It, I thought initially that it was all to do with Australia and it was all organized by that in commemoration of Anzac Day. But it, we actually went with a load of Danish students as well. And the uh, visiting Australian professor of history went over with us. And it was basically, I'm not exactly sure the person whose idea it was, but it was very well organized. And we went over on the Sunday we traveled to Turkey on the Sunday and then we came, we, we did some battlefield tours and stuff. We visited Cape Hales and we visited Anzac Cove, which were the two main uh, landings. And over the space of the Monday and the Tuesday, and then we came home on the Wednesday. So it wasn't a very long tour, but it was very, very sure. good. And, and what, what was it that your college hoped that you'd take from it? I suppose bringing it all home to us, there was an actual Gallipoli module, which you were able to take like you were able to sit in on even if you weren't going to get the credits from it so just to kind of get the experience and the knowledge from it you might think oh that's worthwhile to kind of sit in on this i didn't even sit in on it i just kind of went for the experience and even going on this trip i didn't feel personally that much vested in the actual battle of Gallipoli itself because you know me i'm not hugely interested in the battles because by the time the battles have happened my interest in the history itself has kind of gone down a bit. I mean, yeah, I'd be more interested... Because all the exciting politics... Yeah, yeah. ...left the men to go fight the the fight. Exactly. But what I really learned from it was just how much politics is going on in the background. Um, and I love... What I, lo- what I learned as well is that I love the way that the battles... Not I don't really like the way Army A moved here, Army B moved there. What I love is what brings the men to this point... For example, who makes the decisions to bring them there in the first place? Whose idea was it to launch this battle and why they thought it was a good idea? Yeah. Kind of like with the war itself. Like, why did they think the war was a good idea? Whose idea was it to launch it? Um, and like, from our chat earlier, your your understanding was like, this is how the men were trained and this is how mm-hmm. their organization was put together with their commanders knowing the orders but their infantry knowing nothing and recruits put with with experienced troops and how there was a clash between there of, of troops that would know how to react in combat situations and troops who just didn't know what to do and like that that is where your interest lies well my interest would be more along the lines of okay what was their gear what was their equipment mm. what was their shirt uh how much was it to equip them where were their medic stations how were that how was that organized where were their uh, where were their reserve lines? How did their supply lines work on the ba- on the beaches? How did they get from the sea into the land? And how was the communications from high command relayed? That that's where I'm. That's where I'm interested. And I know that that we've had that conversation before. So. Oh yeah, sure. Um, well, I think I think as well. I I do appreciate all that stuff, but I come to appreciate it more was the the human element of it. 
especially having seen the places where these men died and of course having seen the cemeteries where they met their final resting place and learning really just how I mean it sounds obvious Gallipoli is, is widely seen among the uh, anyone who who lives in the countries that were once like the allied countries it's widely seen as the biggest mess up in kind of the first world war like even the Somme is seen as something terrible, but something that at least achieved something, whereas Gallipoli, they retreated from Gallipoli, so it was a definitive failure. So going to these places and seeing where these people died for no reason whatsoever, but also seeing how the Turks still to this day see it as a definitive founding national moment, especially when you look at Mustafa Kemal uh, Ataturk, who's basically their national figure, and he was the, their the, first their president. War, their war hero. Their war hero, yeah. I mean, he was there on the battlefields of Gallipoli. He, for 10 straight months almost, he commanded the armies. And he was he was the one who issued, well, I mean, a lot of what he says is disputed. But he is supposed to have said, I do not command you to fight, I command you to die. Which kind of symbolizes the whole sense of national sacrifice oh, that was felt by wow, the Turks. Okay. Now that, that brings up a, an interesting point, because uh, recently... The TV show Gallipoli came up, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I I watched the first episode, and I have described it as Downton Abbey with guns. They, <laughs> they're not really interested in the action side of it; they're more interested in the interpersonal relationship side of it. Sure. And uh, as as a diehard fan of Band of Brothers, I was looking for more of the action side of it. Mm. But um, I I I I appreciate what they did. But the, now that you've said that quote, they. I now know who that Turk was that, like, I didn't know. I just thought he was a lowly commander. But oh, right. He, he actually said that mm. to his men. You know, they didn't have ammo. And he was like, you just fix your bayonets yeah. and go back down that hill. Yeah. You don't give up this hill. No. You lie where you are and you fight. And you see, we were at that hill. We stood on that hill where he supposedly had told his men to do that. And it's amazing how much, it sounds obvious in a way, but it's amazing how much being in the places where these things happen brings it all home and actually makes it almost more personal to you. There was I, I was listening to, at the same time, to try and kind of tie all this together in my head, uh, an audiobook on Audible that I got. Uh, it's just called Gallipoli. It's by Peter Fitzsimons, but it's very, very good. The way he describes the battles and the way he describes like the way the people die and the objectives, etc., makes it sound like these places are miles and miles apart. In reality, the hills and the objectives, yeah. they're only a few yards. And you see these things, like, close up, and like, you see the ridges they have to take. The the beach to the hills is probably, you know, 150, maybe 200 yards of, of land. Yeah. Like, when we were at Anzac Cove, I mean, the best way for you to see this in real life is to look at the blog, because there's all sorts of good, good photos on that that I took of the actual battlefield sites. But these days there's a road that goes along that obviously people drive along to get to all these battle sites. But our guide told us that that was where the trenches of the Anzacs used to be on Anzac Cove. Now KPLS was a bit different, I'll talk that in a, talk about that in a minute. But if you can imagine the Gallipoli Peninsula essentially being like a finger sticking out of the European part of Turkey. And at the very tip of that finger was KPLS, which was where the British and their Irish uh, subjects also landed. So the Monster Fusiliers. The Monster Fusiliers as well, yeah. That's where they had a big part to play. And then the Anzacs, the Australians and New Zealand Army Corps, they would have landed 
so if you look at the knuckle of your finger, so you're holding out your finger right now, and you're <laughs> yeah, looking yeah, at your this finger. Is Zach 101. This I'm is driving maps. <laughs> this is mind map 101 right here. <laughs> so if you look at the tip of your finger, um, that is KPLS. Now look at the say like the right knuckle of your finger. So say you've got your you've got your knuckle, and on the right side of that finger, not the left side, on the right side. Yes, that's it. That is the landing of Anzac Bay. So essentially, there was one at the top, and then there was one at the middle, and that's where they landed. The, the Allies landed at the two and sides. You got to actually see this all for yourself. You, yeah. you actually, you said to me, you were surprised by how green and how lush it was. It felt like if I didn't know how many people died in these places, it felt like it should have been a holiday resort. I mean, it, I think one of the girls, I think was it said that. It like I think what makes it most tragic, she said, is that it's just so beautiful. Like it's such a beautiful place, but it just spelled death for so many men. It just seems so wrong that they would have thought it was the right thing to do was like attack this place because you're surrounded by hills and ravines and deep gorges and places that are absolutely ideal for defensive positions, and yet the plans, of course, go up in smoke as soon yeah. as you land on the beach. And it's it. it... The photos that you've shown me uh, are are absolutely beautiful. Um, I commend you on your photography. Oh, thank you. you know, I give this guy a hard time when it comes to photography. <laughs> you know? his, his portraits are, are getting better, but his landscapes are pretty good. I, I'm learning. I'm learning slowly, yeah. But uh, I wanted to make sure that I, that I did justice to the area so that you kind of got a feel for where I was and what it was really like. Because people know of Anzac Bay. They know of KPLS if they know anything about Gallipoli at all. Mm. And even if they know anything about the Anzacs, because they would have heard about them. And of course, Australian and New Zealand people who are listening, they would know all about it to an extent anyway, because it's still taught in their schools and stuff. Yeah, As sure. a national moment, as much as it is in Turkey. So seeing these places close up was a huge thing for me, and so, I'm so glad I did it. And and your your college sponsored you to go there. Yeah, it was they, pretty cool. They they kind of paid they paid for your flights. They organized the accommodation, everything. All you really needed was spending money. So that, that made it great. that made it doubly cool to kind of go. So I would I would highly recommend. I mean, I'm not going to say that. Oh, let's let's all organize as history friends to kind of go over there in the future, but. I would not at all be adverse to organizing some kind of equivalent to the the History of Rome tour that Mike Duncan organized a while ago. I mean, they were very, very popular, but I really feel like uh, it's something that people need to see. I mean, if not Gallipoli, then somewhere else. Well, just to kind uh, maybe, of... maybe somewhere closer to home that that you know our our listeners might be able to get to a bit easier. Like, sure. I don't know, uh, the Somme. Where yeah. Is that? Somewhere the border between France and Germany or something. Yeah, kind of just in that general wasteland area. <laughs> but I really think the importance of visiting these places. It's just so like it can't be overstated because you have to go and see them from yourself in order to feel the kind of emotion that would justify investigating them on a historical level. Because they just look like facts and figures, places on a map, uh, things that went wrong. Whereas if you actually visit them, you'll feel... I mean, even though the birds were singing and the sun was shining and the waves were lapping on the really soft white sand, you could feel the death and the sense of loss in the air. There was something, something indescribable about being in a place like that knowing what has happened and seeing the exact places where people have fallen down. And I think, like, 
the tombstones as well. Like when when I was even in the cemetery on V Beach, which is on KPLS, and seeing the amount of Irish that that fell that are very 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 rarely talked about at all. It's only recently that it started to come back into the the general Irish discourse. But seeing the gravestones, one of them, one of which, and I, a poor Irish guy, Jay Kiernan, had died twenty one years old. But just purely out of chance, I saw his. I looked at the date of his gravestone. He had died a hundred years to the day that I was looking at that gravestone, and it just, I got goosebumps just by looking at that. Like the eleventh of May, nineteen fifteen, and it was the eleventh of May, two thousand and fifteen, that I was looking at it. So just seeing that, it was just so incredible to yeah, think as one Irishman to another. Yeah, to to know that this day a hundred years ago, he had fallen. On a foolish battlefield. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that is... On a fool's errand, sent by fools to achieve, like, a fool's objective. Like, why... Like, we, me and Sean... Yeah, we, we actually... We took time last night to just go... Just basically just, rip apart the idea yeah, of the whole uh, thing. Just, you know, be flabbergasted by the very notion of it. Just sit there and, and look at the, the, the battle maps, look at the strategies that were drawn up, discuss the, the, the plans of the Allies, and just... Wonder what would they hope to achieve with 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 this? And Zach said, you know, they wanted it so that they could control the Ardennes, so that they could put Turkey on the back foot, and they expected to do it because they didn't think the Turks had fight in them. No, nope. you think the absolute arrogance, the, the arrogance, absolute yeah. disregard for human life. It yeah. just it all led to this defeat. Mm-hmm. The absolute carelessness. I mean, there's so many tragic stories. I can't even recount them all. The original plan was to do a solo episode, but I couldn't really... I found it difficult to kind of pick a specific angle to go from. And I felt a lot of a lot of personal anger as well that I kind of didn't feel like I'd be able to do justice to in yeah, a, in you a solo episode. Yeah, you would come in with too much bias. Yeah. Uh, which is fair. So I felt doing this would be, do, be a good way to kind of get it across. But I... I remember in... Hey, and if you're a Turkish listener, good job! Yeah. <laughs> actually, that's it's actually worth mentioning that as well. The amount of uh, pride that the Turks put into it. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say Turkish... Uh, the, the Turkish schools, they must come out down to Gallipoli as school trips and stuff to, to see this. Absolutely, and, they and do. And they must have a completely different emotional response. Yeah. I mean, they must swell up with pride when they see the battlefields and the beaches where just... Thousands of their men died defending, yeah. and held off a much, much stronger and much perceived much more powerful nation and its empire and all of its allies and all of its and all of their vassals. Yeah, not be able to penetrate this beach because of the blood and the the guts of it of Turkey's young men, of yeah. Turkey's fighting soldiers. You and know? it's really incredible as well because Turkey up to this point had not had a good time of it. If you know anything about the Balkan Wars, you'll know that Turkey essentially had all of its European territories. Like, its Ottoman Empire was pretty much Just, cleaved away yeah, from it yeah. so that by about this time in 1914, um, when the war was breaking out, Turkey was perceived as the sick man of Europe that was on the definitive downslide towards extinction really Mm. and this was part and parcel of why the allies thought attacking turkey was such a good idea i mean we've heard all about churchill's reasoning for it and that it would be it would be easy to kind of attack it and you 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 brought it up that you know britain had spent years propping up 
yes. the Turks so that they'd be some sort of defense against Russia. Yeah. And uh, then they expect, well, we've propped them up. They won't be able to do this without us. And mm. they go to invade, and guess what? They've been propped up. They're able to hold themselves now. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Britain thought, well, we've taught them everything they know, yeah. so we should be able to beat them. Mm. There was still a lot a lot of fight left in the Turk that I really don't think they anticipated. And at the risk of shoving my dissertation down everyone's throat, the discourse, the way that they talked about it by the end of the campaign, when it was kind of obvious that they'd have to evacuate or else just risk, like, wasting all these lives, because winter was approaching in late 1915 and it was looking like a pretty bitter cold one. The Anzacs and the British were completely exposed in their trenches on the beaches, so they really didn't have much in the way of cover. People were freezing in their sleep and that kind of thing. They had to get out, but one of the worries was, if we evacuate now, imagine how that will look to the rest of our uh, dominions and to our empire in the east. People will see... We'll look weak. We'll look weak. Our prestige in the east, Mm. as they said, will be perceived to have dropped, like... And with that, like British honor will have will have dipped notably. The British name will not be what it once was in mm. these parts, and sure. therefore will be perceived to be vulnerable. And from that, we might be challenged by anyone who thinks that Britain has become a paper tiger. But as well, not only was Britain being defeated, and France as well, don't forget, but they are being defeated by the Ottoman Empire, the same Ottoman Empire who had been around for centuries and was supposed to be essentially dying out yet here it was defying the greatest empire in the world and its ally at apparently its time of extinction like how was this able to happen Hmm. and Britain was like British politicians and and the like were at pains to describe it of course the soldiers on the ground said like it doesn't matter what their empire is or what power level it's perceived to be at because they have trenches on hills and you can't get to them but this is the thing this is the gentlemanly way of thinking its empire is in pieces, its empire is going downhill, therefore it's going to be easy, deal the knockout blow, so to speak. But when you get down to it on the ground, its men are still just as eager fighting, just as difficult to dislodge from trenches, and they stab with the bayonet just as effectively as anyone else. So it's it was really interesting to see that, and to see how, like even without expecting it, honour kind of comes into that as yeah, well. Yeah, did you say that the Turks charged those... Uh, Anzacs on in the trenches on those beaches because not only did they feel that the, the, the honor dictated it that they thought we could stand a chance of actually pushing these Brits off our off our shores. Yeah, the code of honor it seeps into a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to see it in. For example, if you're a Turk and you see all these enemy, this enemy is on your beach and he's dug in. Your superiors are saying we need to get these guys off the beach, get them off our land because it's the honourable thing to do. Yeah, our honour is at stake as long as they're here. Like the the value of the uh, the value of the attack instead of the defence, where it's it's kind of a strange paradox. At the same time as introducing all these terribly effective machine guns, you also have a dramatic increase in the popularity of the bayonet charge. So these two things just do not go together well. So of course, when you have like all these Turks charging at these Anzacs or allies or what have you that have dug themselves in painstakingly, the casualties are going to be woeful, just like they are from the other side when yeah, when they charge back up the ravine. When the ch- when the allies charge back up the ravine, but I always wondered like when when looking at the casualties of the Turks like 
if it failed, why were there so many Ottoman yeah. casualties? And that was why. It was because it was because the Turks were sent on so many foolish charges down the hill away from their strong positions where they just got massacred. Like jumping over the safety of their trenches shouting Allah, Allah, Allah and just getting absolutely massacred in droves simply because of the rhetoric of the day demanded that they sacrifice themselves or at least try to honourably challenge the enemy rather than just waiting for the enemy to attack them. Yeah, and I'd say in in modern culture now, it's if your position's better, wait for your opponent to come to you. Well, sure, but this took so long to actually get around this kind of idea. And it wasn't just the Turks that thought that, and it wasn't just the Germans or anyone else. The, the French had this bizarre idea and it tied into this idea of the French elan or like spirit of the attack where even though the French army is smaller than the German um, and even though it would make sense to dig in and wait for the Germans to arrive the French at the opening of hostilities insisted on attacking at Alsace and Lorraine to try and rid the Germans off like get the Germans off that territory because that territory was even French though, territory even though it was German occupied yeah, territory yeah and of course the Germans anticipated like the Germans <laughs> anticipated them coming because they knew that the French would want to get rid of them because they knew that it would be di- perceived as dishonourable by the French and, and the Germans would, to be there and if the, the French took it it would be seen as a great victory and of course. the honour and the prestige that would come with taking yeah. Lorraine and um Alsace from them. So. I mean, it's weird. It's like people know that it will lead you to do incredibly stupid and foolish and wasteful things, and yet no one stops to think these ideas just need to be changed. This whole rhetoric needs to be changed. Uh, it's a different world 100 years ago. It is, it's but different. that's another thing I took from it, how different people thought. It was never as starkly shown to me as when I was standing on KPLS, standing at V Beach, seeing the sacrifice that people went through, the things they were expected to do, and how they willingly sacrificed themselves. Irishmen willingly sacrificed themselves for an empire that they couldn't really care much for and weren't personally or emotionally invested in for the sake of their own personal honour and for the sake of, well, their comrades as well, I suppose. I... Like it, I could I could spend a long time talking about how badly organised, how badly commanded uh, the Battle of Gallipoli was... Um, there's just one thing in particular that really stuck with me in this in this period of the Battle of Gallipoli because it lasted from April to very very early January, which was by the time they finally got evacuated in 1916. Mm. But uh, it was a very long fought thing. But of course, every now and then you had offensives that went in waves. The August offensive was the last real attempt to kind of dislodge the Turks. It was where the British and their uh, Dominion subjects would defend in Cape Hales, um down the south, if you remember, the point of the finger. Um, and the Anzac Cove, the um, Australian and New Zealand Corps, would attack up these murderous hills. And at the same time, there'd be a landing at this place called Suvla Bay, a little bit further north of Anzac Cove, of some fresh British and New Zealand troops as well. So all of this was going on. Of course, it was a completely mismanaged failure on such a grand scale. There's this one thing in particular. If you look at the blog post that's referenced there, this uh, this battle called the Battle of the Neck, 
where essentially the idea had been we'll do a bombardment and then at, at, at 5.30 a.m. we'll send a whole load of the Australian light horse over, dismounted of course, not still on their horse, we'll send a load of them over to attack the Turkish positions. Of course they're well entrenched, but don't worry lads, we'll have, we'll have absolutely destroyed them with the artillery by then. But it doesn't go at all according to plan. Well, number one, the shells are completely ineffective, which the Allies will even discover more to their absolute horror in the Somme the following year. But not only do the the shells not really do anything to dislodge the Turks, meaning that the Turks are in the absolutely ideal position to defend. They're full of ammunition, full of all this all this spirit of being ready to defend their positions. But unfortunately, the Australian bombardment stops inexplicably like seven minutes before the Allies were supposed to go over the top. So you have about seven minutes of silence. So seven minutes of time for the Turks to pretty much prepare themselves. And they're kind of incredulous to the fact that they would still be attacked over that time because you're just basically going to kill yourself if you do that. Not only are you announcing your, your intentions to attack this area, but you're giving them time then to prepare themselves. I mean, at least if you send the bombardment and then attack it's not as bad as sending the bombardment waiting waiting some more okay are you ready for us here we come and then attacking like it's crazy yeah absolutely it's just it's just foolish but this was um, this was what was called the battle of the neck and it basically resulted in the absolute slaughter of three australian divisions and uh, i really think it's worth checking out just so you can see it kind of epitomizes the whole gallipoli experience how people were, their lives were just wasted, thrown away for no reason whatsoever, for no gain. I mean, the tragedy of what these, some of these headstones, some of them are saying things like he died for his country's honour, other things are saying he did it for his friends. Others are almost like tragic epitaphs for like lives that were wasted for no reason. I mean, one of them I showed you, I think was the most effective, I thought. It just said his friends bereft have only left his photo on the wall. And, and then it was like mother because his mother had thought of saying that but to say that like the contrast between the guy who thought that his mate died for the honour of his country mm. and the other and then this guy whose mother was fully of the view that he's gone now and the only thing that his friends have left to commemorate him are his photo that's on the wall like it's terrible so so terrible but that's mm. the human element that is so lost in the in the historical discourse, it takes a really talented historian, I feel, to communicate something like that. But if you want to get a feel for it yourself, then the best way, really, is to just go there and see yeah. what exactly happened. Yeah, absolutely. But moving on. Moving on, yes. So, sir, what are your goals over the next three months? You're you're looking to go forward with this podcast. Yes, let's, I am. Let's talk plans. Let's talk decisions. Where okay. are you going? What okay. are you doing? Well, well, well. Um, I mean, obviously the dissertation is going to be here, so you won't be hearing very much from me. This is kind of like not so much a last hurrah. I mean, it's something I really wanted to do this episode was because we have sure. to commemorate. Yeah, three yeah, years absolutely. And a million downloads. But as far as the kind of curriculum of When Diplomacy Fails, if you like, it's going to be on hold until about August. By then, hopefully, I'll have finished my uh, dissertation or else I'll be in trouble. Um, so, yeah, but in terms of expanding the podcast, those uh, techie listeners among you may be interested to know. I've recently subscribed to Squarespace and through that developed uh, When Diplomacy Fails website. Which my hope being that in the future, instead of mentioning all these avenues where you can go... I will be able to link all of the things to this website that you'll be able to find. Now, 
It's a bit ambitious, mainly because I have no real idea what I'm doing. I'm kind of making it up as I go along. But I'm basically hoping right now, as a sort of appeal, if any of you out there are at all familiar with Squarespace, the website designer, or are in any way familiar with how to make websites at all, I would really, really appreciate your help. So, if you feel like paying me back for the three years of podcasting, now would be the best time to do it. Um, So contact me through the usual avenues. Um, If you're sending me an email, just make the subject of that email be like website or something, just so I know. But really, this is a a great opportunity for you if you're looking to, to put input into this podcast and maybe even get something on your CV that, that would say, hey, look, I've, I've done uh, this website for uh, quite a successful uh, podcast. Yeah, he's got so. a million downloads. And then, while you're on your CV just uh, advertising that, you could just start mentioning the podcast and yeah, start yeah. doing there Be Fit. Go. Be Fit. Be Fit to your potential uh, hirer, employer. Employer, there yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah, hirer. <laughs> yeah. So, to uh, reiterate, I would really, really appreciate anyone... Um, who would be able to help me with making that website because I really am out of my element here, guys. That would be much appreciated. So thank you very much. So are there any personal stories that you want to go into uh, from your trip in Gallipoli? Uh, Maybe sharing some of the, the adventures. Well, I think I can't really go any further without mentioning this one time. Okay, Okay, I want you all, all your listeners, to listen very carefully to this. Oh, we were, there we were, minding our own business, walking along one of the streets in uh, Hingalipoli, thinking to ourselves, you know, I'd love to go into a bar. So there was a bar, we, we walked into a bar, and all of us, and uh, oh, dying for a pint, that kind of thing. I mean, we are Irish after all. And I just couldn't help but notice in the corner of the bar, there was this guy with this big orange head. I mean, the thing was huge. It was a very big orange head. And I was thinking to myself... That's very unusual. Very unusual. And I was thinking to myself, how on earth could he have... Like, how is that even possible to have a head that size? So I talked talked to the bartender. Thankfully, he spoke English. And I thought I was... I was, I was asking him, Hey, man, what's the story with the guy with the big orange head? And he goes to me, uh, he doesn't really like to talk about it, but if you buy if you buy him a pint now, if you buy him a pint, he might tell you what the story is with his big orange head. So I walk over by myself. I, t- I take the fall because everyone else, all my other friends, they want to know what the story is of the big orange head as well. But we don't want to crowd him, so I take my pint, take his pint, bring it over, and I start talking to him. And I'm like, "Oh, how's it going? And what's the story? What brings you to Gallipoli? That kind of thing and everything." We're talking for a while. I just can't, I can't take my eyes off this big orange head. So eventually, eventually, he's drank half his pint at this stage. So eventually, I figure, like, it's time to ask. Time to address the big orange elephant in the room, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, sure. so, I, so I ask him... I really want to see where this goes. Yeah, I'm, I ask him, mate, what, what's the story with the big orange head? Like, where did, how did that even happen? And he goes, we're, we're on first name terms at this stage. He goes, Zach... You're a nice lad. I mean, we, we talked for a while here, so you bought me a pint. I mean, fair play to you. I'll tell you how this happened. So I was walking on the beaches of Gallipoli, and it was a grand old day, the sun was shining, and I came across a lamp, and I think to myself, oh God, I know where this is going. So I pick up the lamp and I rub it, and this genie appears, and he goes to me, I'll give you three wishes. So I wish for, like... Riches beyond my wildest dreams, and lo and behold, 
gives me a gigantic swollen bank account and all the money I could ask for, so that's great. And he goes, you've got another wish. And I go, oh, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. So I wish for a beautiful wife. And, and there there is my wife, sorted for the rest of my life. And uh, she takes me by the arm, and I know that I'll never be, I'll never be wanting again. And uh, I have one more wish. And I think very carefully, and the, the genie goes, now, now, you have one more wish, okay? So this is your third wish. And at this point, the guy with the big orange head, he looks at me with those big orange eyes, and he looks kind of wistfully and nostalgically at me, and he goes, Zach, this is the moment it all went wrong. For my third wish, I wished for a big orange head. People are going to hate me now. Uh, <laughs> you, you wasted a good four minutes yeah, of their time. at least. Now, oh, if you're wondering, there was a lot of bus journey yeah. going around Gallipoli, and uh, the the history students found ways to amuse, them, amuse themselves yes, to, uh, yeah. to pass the time as they were going around. I would like to, think, I would like to thank uh, Keelan Moreland for uh, telling us that joke, because... Well, it's kind of an anti-joke. It's an anti-joke, and he started off by saying it's not funny at all, which I probably should have started saying as well, rather than being like, oh, I have a really important story to tell you all. (laughs) But oh well. Oh well, what have I got to lose at this stage? But hey, it's it's the end of the podcast. I mean, this was like the the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, what what better way than to to finish the, the podcast than with the big orange head story, as it's forever going to be called. Um, so thank you all very much for listening, folks. I yeah, think thank that kind you for, of... for taking the time to listen to us ramble on. Yeah, uh, I hope you've been able to take something out of it. If if anything, it's I think it's a really good way to kind of celebrate the kind of three years and one million yeah, downloads. I mean, the, the the key thing is you guys have made this successful. Yes, like as much as Zach puts the work in to put it together. If it wasn't for you coming and every week and and when it's on every week, but every time it comes out and listening to it and keeping on top of it and and following the stuff that you're interested in, it wouldn't be the podcast it is today. And your feedback has come back in and and built Zach into being one of these podcasters that is confident in what he's doing and is excited to to present to his audience. Because that's, you know, he, he... he he feels like you guys and him have this relationship where he, he can do what he likes and he knows that you guys will want to hear and yeah. want to listen to it. I do what I want. And it's great. <laughs> and it's great. Well, you, you really do uh, take quite a, a wide breadth of topics and, and history mm. and keep it changed, ch- keep changing it up, but at all times keep within the focus of what happens when diplomacy fails, which is what the whole podcast is about when you started it three years ago mm, damn that's a pretty good summary right there Sean <laughs> I couldn't really have said it better myself except I suppose just to say again thank you so much and stay tuned because When Diplomacy Fails has by no means exhausted all its options yet and we're going to be looking at Louis the Fourteenth. when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Over the coming weeks, well, we will be looking at it over the coming weeks once the coming months of dissertationing are done. <laughs> um, so that's a bit of an asterisk there. But uh, yeah, so Louis XIV is definitely in our pipeline. And once he's finished, then the idea is to look at the Easter Rising and explain to you what really happened 100 years ago in 1916 uh, to kind of change Ireland so much. So I hope you'll stick around for all that. It's a very exciting time to be a When Diplomacy Fails listener. And thank you all so much for listening, for being fit and everything else. Just one last reminder, uh, if anyone at all is in any way handy with making websites or Squarespace, then please get in contact with me so that we can together get the When Diplomacy Fails' first official website off the ground. I think after three years in the making, I think When Diplomacy Fails deserves its own website. I mean, there's websites for stupider things than this, really. Yes, there really There are. really is, having, <laughs> having researched personally. <laughs> um, so... Thanks very much, guys. And my name is Zach. And my name is Sean. And you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks. Thanks. says wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie where you can find up where you can find out where you can look up (laughs) where you can look out Rock, Rock, you download this at least once The Rock Rock has downloaded this Oh really? Oh and, and you know the, the the water the water downloaded it the, the ocean at least downloaded it three times three different episodes I think he was really interested in those naval battles you talked about I didn't really talk but like he that, that one time in the North Sea that one time I very was, very rarely talk about naval battles every time you talk about admiralty and stuff he downloads those he episodes. just searches for keywords like the ocean like we've told the ocean and the ocean does it the biggest little crap I've ever heard. I'm not even going to include that. You're not even going to include no. it? Okay. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.